know this to be true. When you are using your own innate gifts, the gifts that you see in your mind's eye, in your head, in your heart, things that you are good at, when you're using those gifts, work doesn't feel like work. The world feels effortless. Your your cup runneth over. And on today's show, we talk about how to rig the game, rig your life so that you can do this more often, so that you can win. And I cannot think of a better vessel for this information to come from than my dear friend, Tim Ferriss. So welcome to the show, the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. You know this show where I sit down with legends and uh, unpack their brains. And in this episode, I get to unpack the brain of one of my favorite humans, Mr. Timothy Ferris. Dear, dear friend, for more than a decade, I just had the good fortune of spending the weekend with him in Austin, Texas. And uh, God, so many good, rich conversations. Um, if you're none, If you're not familiar with Tim... Um, I would be shocked, but in case you are not, uh, I don't want you to feel bad about it because learning you're in for a treat today, right? Um, just a, a little recap. He has done so many things. One of the most, I think, powerful, potent writers of our time. He started his writing career with a book called the four hour work week, which was incredibly prescient and way ahead of its time. Um, ironically, there's an article in the New Yorker just this last weekend called revisiting the four hour work week. It was written by, um, Cal Newport. And it was about how, uh, in the four hour work week, what Tim Ferriss was predicting, it was a future where, um, work was increasingly decentralized. You didn't have to go to a place. And in, in this book, Tim talks about how he changed his life. And again, this is, you know, more than a decade ahead of the pandemic, but just how the concept of earning money ought not to tie you to a physical location and how we ought to, instead of pursuing the hamster wheel of a career, how a career ought to actually support, inspire, and um, help us drive the living and the life that we actually want in this world. It was really, really ahead of its time. Um, and that is just the start. I mean, he became famous for that book, The 4-Hour Work Week. It's how I was originally attracted to his work. And I don't even remember. We've been, as I mentioned, friends for more than a decade. We can't remember even how we met. But in addition to that book, um, numerous other new, number one New York Times bestsellers, Tools for Titans. Um, I enjoyed, I had a nice little feature in there. I enjoyed uh, sitting down with Tim, being on Tim's show. Um Tribe of Mentors, The Four Hour Body, so many number one New York Times bestsellers. I truly think that Tim is an icon of the present day. Uh, and this show, to be straight up, is a show that aired uh, some time ago. And my interactions with Tim, this revisiting of how uh, ahead of its time, the four hour work week, made me go back and listen to the show with Tim and and I was hyper motivated to get this in front of you because this this conversation between he and I uh happened a number of years ago uh 5 years ago now and it could not be more relevant. Uh I will also let you know that this is a part of the 30 Days of Genius series and if you don't know that series this is where I interviewed 30 legends 
And all of those interviews are available to you for free at Creative Live. If you want to go check out creativelive.com slash genius, all you have to do is press one blue button entirely free, and then you'll get one of these discussions every day, which is includes folks like Mark Cuban, uh, Richard Branson, Sophia Amoruso, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, Damon John from Shark Tank. I mean, there is a whole host of legends. Um, but anyway, this conversation with yours truly and Mr. Tim Ferriss was a part of that. And it just, I had to highlight it because of its wisdom. How to plan projects that whether or not you viewed them as successful or as failures or whether the outside world judges them, how those projects are ultimately critical for developing skills, networks, and all of the things that require or enable rather you to be able to move on to the next project. It's, they're literally the stepping stones. They are the foundation that everything that you have in this world is based on, is built up from. And we often forget about that. Um, there's a really cool insight from the show about asking yourself, what would this, whatever this thing you're working on, a project, a relationship, what would this look like if it were easy? Very, very powerful question. Um, also, this really interesting uh, subject that how it is difficult for so many personalities, type A and others, just call them driven people, how hard it is to feel that if you are not making a huge effort that you're somehow not being effective or you're not living up to your potential or you're this, this, this um, potentially perceived inextricable relationship between level of effort and impact when in fact, it's not really a one-to-one correlation. It's not true. This is a, it was a huge wake up call for me. And this is honestly the thinking, this conversation, this part of the conversation is what made me go, okay, I gotta, I gotta resurface this for my podcast listeners. Um, so these insights and so many more are part of the show. I cannot wait for you to dig in and to enjoy the show. Um, I'm going to be, you know, laser focused on social media. If you have additional questions, of course, let Tim and I know that you listen to the show so we can answer any questions that you may have. But I, I'm telling you, this is a whopper. So I'm going to stop talking and let you enjoy the wisdom, the brilliance of Mr. Timothy Ferris. One of the most powerful messages that you can hear are the three words, it is possible. Whatever your thing is, whether it's, it's music, fine art, filmmaking, building a business, nonprofit work, you can build a living and more importantly, a life around that thing. Now, one of the most often overlooked aspects of success here, not to mention a well-lived life, is acquiring those skills. That's why more than 10 years ago, I founded creativelive.com. This is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education bar none. That's the reason that I'm you know, on my soapbox right now is because I believe so deeply in it. This is where, again, tens of millions of people have already learned how to take action and affect their life for the better. Again, to pursue their passions, to create a living and a life in an area that they would love to spend their time. In addition to classes around photography, video, art, design, music, audio, there's also things like health and wellness, mindfulness, meditation, 
If you've been listening to the show for a while, you're aware that I used to encourage you to buy a class to try and transform one aspect of your life. And that was like 99 or 149 bucks, say. Now we've moved Creative Live to subscription first. So you can get access to more than 2,000 classes for roughly the same price of a single class just a year or two ago. An annual subscription is now just $149. That's right, that's a whole year. What is that, like 13 bucks for access to thousands of hours of super high-end learning content, all for one simple price. You can play annually or you can pay monthly, whatever works for you. Where do you do that? Go to creativelive.com slash creator pass. All right, that about wraps it up. Now let's get back to the show. <laughs> We're just gonna hold each other for the rest of the show. So, how are you? I'm well. Are you good? I'm doing great, man. I'm We're fantastic. in San Francisco, sunny we San Francisco. Are. It's 80 I degrees know. today. Uh, I'm wearing a sweater because we were wearing the same outfit before we started. I end up with the same outfit as my guests all the time. Ah. Um, how are you? You good? I'm fantastic. Yeah, I'm really fantastic. The podcast is crushing. Uh, it's, it's funny how that as a side project, as a sort of stress release valve turned into the main focus. The thing. Now. I mean, it was really intended just to be a creative outlet. And, uh, I remember kind of I was guest pad. I was guest number either two or three. Yeah, three I was, I was think, you yeah. pitched it to me as an experiment. Like yeah. this is going to be weird. It might be bad. It might be bad. Quite probably will be bad. <laughs> but I was so burned out after doing the last book, The Four Hour Chef. I just wanted something different. And I also, along the lines of what Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, has talked about before, to focus on sort of systems thinking in his language, which is planning projects that even if they are viewed as a failure by the outside world give you skills or a network something that helps carry over to your next project so for me it was like well even if the podcast fails i'll get better at asking questions and i'll get bet i'll get better <laughs> that's funny at eliminating verbal tics i say as i sound like porky pig <laughs> uh work in progress folks but uh yeah, it's, it's just been a blast. And it's one of those rare cases where the thing that is now driving a lot of the creative ship for me is what I most enjoy doing. So Go I'm figure. Thrilled. Yeah, go figure. But is there a, well, not is there, I know the answer. The answer is yes. You engineered that, mm -hmm. but did you engineer it so carefully? Like, did you know it was gonna be this perfect or this magical when you started, or did you just start? Like, give us a little bit of your thought process. Oh, because like, baked in there is the answer, but I wanna yeah, know. Yeah, it, it was not a disaster when it started, but if, if, if you go back and listen to like episode one with Kevin Rose, uh, I was nervous. You start with your friends. I start right? with my friends and I was still yeah. nervous. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember a couple things happened in that first interview. Number one, I was just, I was throwing out the questions that I'd borrowed from other people mm -hmm. I had seen interview. So one of them was like, well, if you could be a, a, a breakfast cereal, what would you be? And Kevin's like, oh, it's gonna be one of those interviews. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> oh, stop chafing my balls. I'm already nervous. <laughs> and then uh, I was nervous and drinking wine. And so when I flash forward like three quarters of the way through, I sound, and I was, completely drunk. So it's like right out of the gate, I embarrass myself. Well, this but is gin. We should, this uh, is gin, we should be very clear. <laughs> but what, what I did do is uh, interviewed or really just reached out to podcasters before starting to ask them a series of questions, which is what I do anytime I try to learn about anything, even if I don't launch, even if I make the decision to abort. And in this case, it became clear that almost everyone who launches a podcast quit after, say, three episodes. You look on iTunes, 300,000 podcasts, let's just say, and the vast majority have three episodes and then they, they go silent. 
they go dead. And it's because people get overwhelmed with editing. So I made the decision to do long form, long conversations, next to no editing. And just that decision alone, I think has allowed me to get to where I am in a, in a necessary but not sufficient manner. Like those, those small decisions that are made, and we were chatting about this before we started recording, but in, re in response to the question that I've been asking myself more and more, which is, what would this look like if it were easy? Like, yes, you can try to make it perfect over here, but that might mean that you quit after three attempts. So like, what would it look like if it were easy? And part of the answer was next to no post-production. I love it. Uh, well, to, to uh, describe a parallel track, Chase Jarvis Live, this particular show is five or six years old now, and the original 50 episodes were only in Seattle, 100-person live studio audience, live only, no pre-recorded, uh, also the same long format. And it was hard, and even then I'd made some decisions, some uh, aesthetic decisions, one of which was making it black and white. Primarily, that was uh, intentional so that it would be reductive and you're just focusing on the, the two people in the conversation. But then it was also like, oh, well, that saves all kinds of other uh, problems because we can use mixed light and natural light and you know artificial light and we don't have to solve for all this shit. So there's, I, I kind of tried to do it then. And this, what we're living right now, is an even easier version of that. Mm -hmm. And it's weird how when you take out these things that are the blockers, how you can steamroll through something. And not only that, but what I've come to realize uh, maybe a little later in my life than I would have liked is that... You're like 26. What do you mean later? That's true. 26. <laughs> I'm doing a lot of roids. That explains the lost hair. But uh, that's a joke, folks. Not a very funny one. But the, uh, the point I was going to make is that I think for type A personalities, I'd put us both in that bucket. Dangerously. Is it is easy as a default to assume that if you're if you don't feel like you're burning the candle at both ends, you're not doing a good job. And what I've realized is yes, there's a place for hard work if you've chosen the appropriate place to put it. However, if you're really focused on your unique abilities, right, and really just honing in on the things that you are best at. And it doesn't mean you're best in the world, but just of the things that you do, you are best at this small piece. It's not, it shouldn't feel really, really hard and forced. And I think that that, that leads some people who are really driven to veer away from what they're good at to incorporate all this complexity that is comprised of things that they're mediocre at or just so-so at. And I've just realized for myself, and the podcast is really the, was the wake-up call for me, that it doesn't have to be so hard. Uh, and yes, there are times when you grind. Yes, there are times when like, I'll batch record the podcast, which is another thing I do to make it sustainable. So I'll record, say I record on Mondays and Fridays. I just decided as a policy, I'm gonna record on Mondays and Fridays. And I'll do two or three on a Monday, two or three on a Friday. That's a month and a half of long form interviews. And then I have the shorter ones. And all of that is intended to make it sustainable and consistent. And it allows me to focus on the pieces that I'm best at. Uh, whereas if, if I had made other decisions based on what the crowds were doing, right? And I was told this when I started blogging, like you have to blog at least a half a dozen times before noon or nobody's going to pick up on your blog. It's not going to become huge. You have Spike to do this. Into your skull. It has to be <laughs> this length. It has to be this. It has to be that. And when you ask those folks for, like, for the evidence or any, any supporting data, you know, well, how do you know that? Even just that question, you don't have to be abrasive about it. Like, how do you know that? And they're like, because so-and-so, Bill, Bob, and Harry, and Jane told me that it was true. And it's like, oh, you realize 
Like just because something's been repeated that often doesn't make it true. And you find the same thing in like podcasting. You have to do this, have to do this, have to do this. And uh, just to give one example, since I'm all fired up on green tea, is the uh, audio quality. So audio quality is important in so much as for 99% of the people listening, they're going to be in a subway, in a car, cooking. It has to be intelligible and it has to be loud enough and make it stereo, uh, or rather mono, so that you don't have like one person's voice in one ear and one person's voice in the other. As long as you do that, everybody except for audio engineers will be happy. Yeah, uh, so but, true. But people will kill themselves who know nothing about audiovisual with like preamps and all of this gear and they'll become so overwhelmed, none of which I use, uh, that they quit because they're like, this is too complex for me. It's like, what would this look like if it were simple, if it were easy? So let's extrapolate just to some really concrete stuff like what is the universal lesson if it's if you simplify it it's easy but presumably there are folks out there who are writers and photographers and designers and is there a, a maxim that transcends just make it easy uh, well there's I think there are compatible maxims if there's something to transcend it transcend uh, might not am be. I making this hard am I making this harder than it needs to be for instance, one of the best pieces of advice just to get out of podcasting and look at writing. Yeah. Which I find infinitely harder than podcasting, although. Yeah, we're doing, we're yeah. podcasting right we're now. Podcasting we're podcasting right now. I'm yeah. not even trying. Are you I trying? Know. It's, I'm it's not effortless. trying. It's although effortless. I've t I had so much mushrooms before we started. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You did hours of prep for this. I, I did know. hours, hours of prep. The, the, the blank page mm -hmm. is very intimidating for a lot of people, uh, unless they happen to be trained journalists who can churn out you know, 1,500 words a day and have them be good, that's not me. Uh, but one of the best pieces of advice I got was from someone who told me this lesson in the context of IBM back in the day, when IBM was just the, the behemoth. It was an 800-pound gorilla uh, across several different industries, and their salespeople were known as being incredibly, incredibly effective. They smashed quotas. Now, how did they do that? One of the lessons that was taken away from IBM was that they, they made the quotas really low. That's pretty odd. Why would they make the quotas low? Because they wanted the salespeople to not be intimidated to pick up the phone. They wanted to just build that sales momentum and then people would overshoot their goals. Translated to writing, I was told at one point, your goal should be two crappy pages a day. That's it. If you hit two crappy pages, even if you never use them, you've succeeded for the day and alleviating that performance anxiety about putting down like 10 pages of good material, which inevitably, I think, you're going to fail at least once or twice a week, uh, allows you to overshoot that goal and continually succeed and sort of build that confidence and momentum. Um, so that, that would be an example of rigging the game so that you can win it. It applies to diet, it applies to exercise, it applies to writing, it applies to podcasting. Uh, how can I make this easy? How can I set, in a way, the goal lower, the objective smaller, um, so that I can feel like I'm winning? Because I feel like the feeling that you are winning is a precursor to winning on a very to, large scale. Yeah, to actually winning. Uh, the way I talk around it on here is Creative Live, for example, has a ton of momentum right now. Yeah. It's like it's just growing. It's exceeding our expectations. I mean, we have very high expectations, but you, you can't 
underestimate the power of momentum. And mm -hmm. two becomes four, four, I mean, just think about compounding interest. There's like, you're leaning into it and it's accelerating and the, uh, maybe even the accelerating, law, a lot of accelerating returns, that's what I'm trying to think of. So is that a, um, I don't know. Are you, do you apply it to every part of it? Because you just touched on like writing and all like I do. I apply it to any type of behavioral change. And if you want to be more creative, you want to make more money, which is then has many different component behaviors. Okay. If you want to sleep better, uh, longer, deeper, whatever it might be, set of behaviors you need to change, right? Uh, so whenever I'm looking at behavioral modification, I think B.J. Fogg at Stanford has done a lot of interesting writing in this in this department where if he's trying to get someone to floss, he'll be like, start with your front teeth. It's like, don't worry about the whole mouth. He's just like, I want you to floss like you're, you have enough time to floss your front teeth it's before you go to bed. eight seconds. And eventually you just be like, wow, I'm such a loser. I can't believe I'm flossing my front teeth. I'll just floss my whole mouth. And you do it and before you know it, boom, you're flossing your teeth, right? So, uh, but, but rigging it in such a way that you don't put it off, right? So, oh, you want to pick up an exercise habit. Five minutes on the treadmill. That's it. And it's like, if you get in there and you're like, ah, I'm not feeling it. You want to jet after six minutes? Great. You're done. You succeeded. You win. If you want to stay, you're feeling great, feeling a little froggy, as my uh, gymnastics coach currently would say. It's like, great. Then stay on for another 30 minutes. But like, understand that's bonus points. You already won. And uh, I, th I think another way, a very close corollary to that for creatives, particularly people who are like, I need to win. I want to be number one. I want to fill in the blank. Like, I have no idea. Aggressive goal. I know you. Ha I know you have <laughs> none of none of that hardwiring. Is celebrating the small wins. I think I've been very bad at that historically. Yeah, me too. And uh, uh, my ex-girlfriend helped me develop a habit, which I think is a great habit. I have this jar, and it sounds it's going to sound super cheesy, but she labeled it the jar of awesome, and it's a big mason jar, and it's just like when something really cool happened, you're not going to remember it like three months later and have that perspective to give you gratitude. It's like write it down on a little piece of paper like every night, like write down the things that were awesome that happened that day, however small they might be, fold it up, put it in the jar of awesome. And then when you get into a funk, when you're feeling down, when you're feeling uncreative, whatever it might be, go through and read these pieces of paper, these little like self-made fortune cookies of That's goodness awesome. from this jar. It's, it's, a, it's a really easy habit that I think allows you to not only be creative, but understand that most people, and I know this isn't exclusively focused on creativity, but why do people want to be creative? Because they want to do good work. Why do they want to do good work? Because this, this, this. Why? Because they want to feel good about themselves and be happy. It's like, well, you can give yourself small doses of that throughout the process. You don't have to postpone that reward that you think you're going to get at the end. Because guess what? If you don't celebrate the small things, you're not actually going to be very good at celebrating the big things either. Yeah, there's, uh, I don't remember, it's come up in this series of talks, the, the, uh, somebody was talking about, uh, was it, I think it was Neil Strauss talking about interviewing Lionel Richie, like Lionel Richie, he just had a, I mean, had an epic year, you know, it had to be like 1983 or something yeah. like that, but it was an epic year, he won the Grammy, he sold a million albums, blah, 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 and it was like, he, he considered himself climbing his way to the top in the music industry, and when he got there, you know when he told Neil was up there? Fuck all. There's nothing up there. <laughs> it, was not, it was just there was no one else on the mountain, yeah. and so it, it's just obviously the the you know the takeaway is that it's it really is the journey. It sounds trite, like you said, like a, a awesome jar or a jar of awesomeness. But if you can't actually celebrate your wins along the way, what do you got? Yeah, and the anecdote that I, I still remember uh, to this day, and it just puts a lot in perspective. 
which was from Thich Nhat Hanh. So this is a Buddhist monk who's nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by Martin, Ling, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Vietnamese Buddhist monk. And he's, he's, he's done quite a lot of writing. I think the first was Pieces Every Step or something like that, which was intended for internal use only. It was a guidebook to new monks who were attending his uh, retreat center or monastery in Vietnam. But the point being, the, the anecdote that he talked about was thinking about this peach. So you really want this peach at the end of the day. And this is like your, your reward for a hard day's work, whatever it is. But if you're, say, washing the dishes, and instead of being mindful and I don't want to get too woo-woo and out there, but this, this does have a lot of practical applications. Instead of like being present with washing the dishes and doing it in a very conscious way, you're thinking about the peach you're going to have afterwards. When you're eating the peach, you're not going to be able to enjoy the peach either. You're going to be thinking about like your inbox or whatever the hell it is that you're going to do after the peach. And so it's like really honing that. And I actually owe you a debt of gratitude, I'll, and I've said this before, but for introducing me to transcendental meditation and getting me to bite the bullet with that. And there are many different types of mindfulness practice that work very well. I think things like Headspace are very helpful as apps yeah, and whatnot. Yeah, great app. Calm, Headspace. Calm, also yeah, very yeah. good. Uh, but celebrating the small wins. And mindfulness is one of the constituent attributes that you can develop that helps a lot with that. I love that. I'm going to go to the meditation thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's you, you provided the bridge now that you're a professional interview with the podcast and everything. Natural bridge, so I'm going to take it. Uh, one of the things that uh, I'll tell a short story here, which is, I don't remember where we were. We were in Seattle somewhere, uh, or maybe not, but we were doing something. And you said, dude, you're like, you're killing it, and you, yet you seem really chill. What's going on? Mm -hmm. Like, what, what's different? There's something different. I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting you said that. I can't really think of, oh, actually, come to think of what's different is I started meditating about, you know, six months ago or something. And I think you were like, hmm, are you okay? I think you checked my pulse. You, you made sure that I was still alive. and. And then we sort of, yeah, I don't remember if we laughed about it or, or were, I just, there was a, a, a few minutes of introspection around what does that mean? Is it, is it the thing that has got us to where we are? Um, any amount of success that you could say either one of us has had. Is it because we're hardcore type A grinder, like gonna not fail at any cost type of people? Or is that something that's actually been an anchor all along, and right? Like you were worried We've about. We've succeeded yeah, despite you, it, and not because of it. Yeah, and you asked me, like, well, don't get all soft on me, Jarvis. Do you feel like you did? Are you losing your edge? Yeah. yeah. So talk to me about not. We'll get into meditation in particular in a second, but how about the mentality or the fear that some people who are um, hardcore or hard charging consider themselves that type of a person? Tell me or the people who are listening and watching how that's not the case, or how it wasn't the case for you, or how you sort of played through that? This is, this is something I, I haven't fully answered for myself, uh, to be quite honest. And I was just having an exchange, while well, I was talking on my podcast with Tara Brock about this, mm -hmm. who wrote a fantastic book called Radical Acceptance. Terrible title, great book, uh, that I think is a very digestible and approachable presentation of how uh, you can implement a lot of what we're talking about. Uh, I feel like at the very, in the very worst case scenario, when I'm meditating consistently, and for me, tell me if this is true for you, but for me, let's just say I haven't been meditating at all. Whatever, I'm just being an idiot, or life intervenes, I'm just not meditating for like two weeks. It takes me about five to seven days for there to be like a phase shift. Like you meditate, I meditate consistently, and it's kind of like, eh, what am I doing? Okay, 
That session was eh, meh, meh, meh. And then you drop in and then you kind of shift gears and things become very, very different. Uh, when I get to that point, in a worst case scenario, I feel like I have half the anxiety and unnecessary stress and very stoic sense, right? I mean, yeah. I talk about stoic philosophy a lot. I read tons of Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, et cetera, repeatedly. And <clears throat> so I'm not allowing external factors to provoke an excessive emotional response. So like 50% less of all the negative manifestations of that. Stress, anxiety, da 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 da. Uh, Tony Robbins, I remember, said at one point, he said, stressed is, is sort of type A language for fear. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> that's a pretty good one. Uh, and secondly, I'd say I, would, I get 80% as much done. That's a worst case scenario. So it's like 50% yeah. decrease in all the negative, yeah. and at least 80% of what I usually get done. Uh, so that's at the low end. Like yeah, the, that's yeah. Like the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario. Trying to look at it with slightly rose-colored glasses on, I would say that meditating allows, helps me to be more effective, not just more efficient. Meaning, much of what I do when I don't meditate, I think, is reactive, compulsive, dodging of bullets or putting out fires. It's like, okay, great. Maybe you cleared. 50 additional email that day. Were those email important to clear at all in the first place? Maybe not. And I think that with meditation, I'm able to, or mindfulness practice, just because meditation is like a total rebrand. It's got we'll so go much baggage. We'll go there. Yeah, but it allows me to step back where I'm like, okay, no longer am I on like the front lines in a trench having like grenades lobbed at me. I'm actually like the general looking at the battlefield and like the map of the territory being like, okay, let's make some like high level decisions. Like these guys shouldn't even be fighting over here. What the fuck are they doing over yeah, here? Right. No, like all right, go over here. Call these guys out. We need more troops here. And objective wise, we should be going after like this, this, this. Great. Everybody, deep breath, execute. Uh, so that's a bit of a winding answer, but I, I feel like, especially at this point in my life, I, I do feel like I could have benefited tremendously from it previously. Yeah. Even if it were just for the, the benefit that I find myself less likely to engage in addictive behaviors, like stimulants. So mm -hmm. I have always loved coffee. Uh, I mean, tea at the weakest, right? Uh, when I was, an, uh, when I was a, uh, yeah, exactly. When I was a high school athlete, I got hooked on pre-workout supplements, you know, ephedrine, caffeine, aspirin, all that stuff. And I think I did a lot of physical damage to myself by taking that stuff consistently because it was sort of self-medicating, but also just really uh, put me on like level 11 to you know, in spinal tap yeah. parlance. But when I meditate, I don't need those things as much, nor do I want those things as much. Yeah. So I think it could have been very helpful just from a health standpoint if I would started earlier. Uh, and these days, you know, I'm 38, I feel like I want to pick my shots. It's like I'm no longer the athlete I once was. I'm not going to go out there like Joe Frazier and just like throw hooks all day long. It's like, no, I want to just, like, I want to have very surgical strikes. And to do that, you need to, I think, have just that general level awareness and not be a foot soldier. Yeah. I just actually read a great quote from Maya Angelou, something about creativity, and it, for some reason this is a, a tie-in to meditation, which is um, creativity is a, an infinite resource. The more you spend, the more you have. Mm -hmm. 
and I find that there's this sort of compounding thing. You, you alluded to it in your meditation sort of uh, recount right there where it's just like it's compounding day one, day two, day three, it's like three, 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 and then all of a sudden it's four, five, six, mm -hmm. seven, eight on a scale of one to ten. Um, and I find that if I'm in it, boy, it's an accelerating sort of uh, experience. Uh, and effectiveness, not efficiency, mm -hmm. for sure. It is clarity. The way Jordan talks about basketball, like he sees the game in slow motion. That's what makes him different than mm -hmm. most of the other players. I think that's the one that I've used on why I think meditation is powerful because I tend to see my life in slow motion mm -hmm. as opposed to the hyper-caffeinated, like, got to run from here and I'm late to this in five minutes and how busy feels so powerful because you're always doing and, mm -hmm. oh, man, I'm so awesome. Um, no, I agree. And the... the uh, Creativity being an asset that grows the more you use it, the more you spend, I think is a very interesting concept. And what I've been focusing on personally in the last, say, three to six months, really trying to focus on is uh, seeking out and creating the absurd. So I think that there's so much absurdity in life. And as adults, we've kind of inculcated ourselves to be very serious. We're so serious and mature. And I think that is kryptonite for creativity. I really think that like taking life and yourself too seriously Oof. is just, yeah, it's, dangerous. it's like waterboarding your creativity. It just, it, it absolutely nullifies or at least decreases it dramatically. So for me, I've been trying to not only seek out absurdity, which I think quite frankly is, is in many cases a synonym for creativity or creative, it's like just, if creativity is too nebulous, and like people are like, I've read six books on creativity, I'm still not sure what the hell it means. It's like, go for absurd. Like try to find the absurd and create the absurd. So, and on that note, uh, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, one of my favorite writers. Incredible. Uh, Lovely. Hilarious writer also. So incredibly fun. deep philosophical thinker, but it's embedded in this humor, like Cat's Cradle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, no cat, no cradle, you know? It's just like, uh, that doing things kind of just for the hell of it, you know, for no good reason whatsoever, and making them as absurd as possible. I've created some very interesting opportunities for myself, some very unexpected opportunities for myself, just by doing things on a lark and doing things uh, because they're absurd. Could be, could be Can you just give a, us an example? Yeah, I'll give you an, give you an example. So the, on Instagram, like I try to put up uh, at least a handful of photos a week that are just completely absurd with minimal explanation, just to see how the world responds. So it's like me testing out my, my dog's new dog bed, you know, with like little to no explanation. Or like yesterday, putting up this photo of myself with these ridiculous things called sun stashes, which got sent to me and it's like sunglasses with these little bunny ears with like a chain that hangs down with like a bunny mouth over my mouth. So I took this photograph of myself with a Save Ferris shirt on holding a kitchen knife and a bottle of wine and just put that out there. And I was just like, let's see what the world does with that. And um, how was it received? It was received, uh, I mean, as to be expected with the internet. Like yeah. there are a lot of people who don't know how to take anything non-literally. Yeah which, and I'm not sure how you would even take that literally, uh, it was great. It was just like scratching my own itch to be absurd and just uh, stir things up a bit. And Can I'm, we use the word play? Play, for sure. Yeah. And I, I think that another, and I know we're going all over the place it's here, fine, but I think that I've also 
revisited a lot of mythology in the last year or so. This is not this we haven't talked about this, but for sure, uh, I've become fascinated by minotaurs and shit. Or what do you mean? Not, uh, uh, yeah, potentially minotaurs, yeah. but uh, a lot of animal-related, say, Native American mythology. Looking yeah. at like the, the the coyote and the raven, or like Inktomi, or these different trickster gods. Uh, I mean, I used to be a D and D head in all. Fairness, Dungeons and Dragons. For those who who who, who have not played with the the graph paper, the twenty-sided, the 20 -sided die. die. Oh, so good. <laughs> I still have all of my nice. uh, yeah dodecahedrons and all that goodness. But go gray elf. Anyway, the the point being that there, I think that the the masks people wear, and this is someone else's quote, but often tell us more about who they are than the truth, right? Mm. And the stories that persist for hundreds or thousands of years can tell us, even though they're fiction, more about our sort of existential condition and humanity and human nature than any nonfiction book written on the subject. Uh, and that's something I've been trying to explore, like to discover truth through what people would consider non-truth uh, in the form of mythologies. and. Uh, specifically for me focusing on these kind of trickster prankster gods who vary they're very, I mean very interesting characters uh, because they're viewed on one hand as creators and one hand destroyers but they in many cases kind of walk the line between the this ordinary reality of human beings and this other world of the mythology uh, surrounding the gods and whatnot but there's is 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 off the reservation as all of that sounds I think there's a lot of truth to be gleaned by looking at stories that have just persisted for hundreds of thousands of years. There's and that's a, informed a lot of my behavior. Yeah, there's a there's a play component embedded in that for sure. Like it's mm -hmm. make believe or and it made me as you were talking, I reflected on my own life and I have a list of 10 habits that I do every day and I put there's actually two words that I put in one habit and it's play or make. Hmm. And like I consider myself Where do you put that? I uh, I put it in an app called Habit List oh. that I track 10 habits. It's not a free app, so you yeah. have to be prepared to pay $1.99, <laughs> which I've literally have said, yeah, check out this app, and like, oh my god, it, it's 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 $1.99. <laughs> like, literally, you paid twice as much for your coffee this yeah, morning, so right. get off your ass and fork up the $1.99 <laughs> Habit List. It's a good one. So you put, now, make or play, are those two separate habits, or do you I put them in one, one habit? And that's the part that I think is interesting, is oh. we were talking about, like, Creativity is sort of making something out of nothing, and then you got to be careful not to take yourself too seriously, and that le led us into play. What are some of your other habits? Sorry, <laughs> I'm holding back. No, to this is protect great. this family program. No, this, this is great. I'll, I'll, I'll get to those in just a second. Let me okay. put a bow on this point. But the fact that play and make for me are interchangeable. Yeah. Um, I look at making as a playful activity, yeah. even though basically the only job I've ever had is as a professional creative, mm -hmm. uh, and. You know, a reflection on uh, one of someone you introduced me to, Charlie, who used to work for you, helped uh -huh. you launch the four hour work body. week, maybe four hour body. Mm -hmm. um, his book, Play It Away, which is about having finding some relief in your day, 30 minutes to just go hit baseballs or take a walk or goof off, basically, mm -hmm. and how that stimulates creativity. So I put those on the same thing, on the same level, and if I make something, say this show, or I will take some time out and actually go take some pictures every day, that making or goofing off. Mm -hmm. I lump those in the same thing because it makes me I a like better that. human. You want to know some other habits? I do. Uh, make sure to drink 64 ounces of water every day. 64 ounces. Which is not an incredible amount. It's just like... Eight glasses. Yeah, roughly eight glasses. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And Kelly Stretz got me salting that water, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kelly does that. Um, another one is eight hours in bed. I don't require eight hours of sleep um, of myself, mm -hmm. but generally there's a strong correlation with I'm, if I'm in bed. <laughs> Bedtime I'm and sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird how those go together, right? Like, um, yeah. I do the same thing with napping. Yeah. It's, not na it's not sleep for 20 minutes. It's lay down for 20 minutes because that, again, like rigging the game so you can win, it, if you lay down, you're like, fuck, I need to get to sleep. I only have 20 minutes. Sleep, come on, sleep. Like you're never yeah. gonna get to sleep. And so, but if it's just like lay down, you're gonna get 80% of the benefit if you just close your eyes and just relax mm -hmm. for 20 minutes. Then you actually will oftentimes fall asleep. There you go, so that's my eight hours in bed. Mm -hmm. um, eat clean, and clean, I have a sort of an operative uh, whatever clean is right now. Sometimes it's paleo, sometimes it's just no fake foods, like nothing with preservatives or whatever, and so I, is, you know, that I eat clean today, or it should be cleanly. Mm -hmm. But uh, what else, what other, I'm, I'm questioning, what else is on my list here? Um, well, this isn't about me, it's, you asked the question, you're now a professional interviewer as we do this. is about us. Meditation AM and meditation PM. So I give myself 20 minutes every morning and 20 minutes every evening, and I don't hold myself to the 20 minutes, that's why it just says meditate. Yeah. Sometimes when I come out of it and it's been 11 minutes, yeah. I allow myself to, I'll usually just sit there for another four or five. What time do you meditate at night? Uh, I try and meditate before dinner. Okay, because I almost never meditate in the afternoon or evenings. Yeah. I just, I just kind of threw in the towel with that early on, but I do the mornings consistently. Yeah, morning, so before dinner. Yeah, I tra and, I, and uh, I track this behavior so I can tell you exactly what my percentage is for PM meditation. I'll do that right now. Uh, in the week of 327 in March, I was at 57% of the time. Huh. So not all the time, right? Uh, versus the week of 313, Almost I was 71%, <laughs> yeah, I know. But again, the, the point is that I don't, I set the habit to just yeah. do the thing. Yeah. And uh, let's see, I'll give you the rest of them. Zero to one glasses of red wine. Zero to one, that's a lot of, that's a lot of self-control, sir. It is, and I've been doing this basically since, I mean, I think you probably know me as someone who parties reasonably hard. I'm not afraid to drink 10 drinks. Yeah. Uh, and starting in January 1st, I just said, you know what, I'm, I'm, I did the January wagon, basically didn't drink anything in January. It felt amazing and my sleep was completely transformed. I was yeah. sleeping in a really different and much deeper way. Uh, and then January or February, I said, okay, well, I'll just have a couple drinks here and there. And now I'm, I've been on this thing and I love it. So I, I'm probably drinking 90% less. See, so if I, I, I don't do moderation very well. Some mm -hmm. other binary on or off. So I haven't done any booze this month. At all? No. Nice. And uh, yeah, I have, I'm, I, I have to eliminate. I'm not very good at moderating. Well, we'll go have a drink after this. <laughs> go Visualize, visualizing stiff gratitude. kombucha. Visualizing gratitude. Uh, I already said player make. And move my body. How, do you, how does gratitude manifest? Uh, immediately following my morning meditation, I, and I put those things, I put gratitude and um, what, what, visualizing gratitude. So I visualize some of the things that I want to happen in my day and in my life. Mm -hmm. And I usually do that immediately after. So when I'm coming out of meditation, I look, okay, great, I got you know, my 20 minutes. Uh, what, are, what are some things I want to manifest? And these are just pictures that I, I think in pictures, as most mm -hmm. people do and I just picture some of the things having ha in the process of happening, mm -hmm. that I, whether it's uh, a great interview with Tim Ferriss, so I picture us sitting here laughing, talking, oh, this is so <laughs> great, we love it. And, and then I'll you know, picture some success with Creative Live or some sex, some su <laughs> that was a <laughs> Oh yes, 
some success <laughs> with my wife Kate. Um, uh, but I'll just, uh, you know, whether it's um, personal or professional, like what are some things I want to have happen? And then I'm like, ah, oh, that was awesome. What are some things I'm grateful for? And it's usually a little bit of a reflection on what I just yeah. wanted to have. Man, I'm really thankful for all the things that Kate's taught me in my life. Or I'm, you know, I got a, a elderly cat, Dexter. Every, you know, he's on his last, he's in his sort of end of life horizon. And I'm like really grateful for every day hanging out with Dexter if I'm at home. And that guy's, he's done a lot for me. And five or 10 things. And I, mm -hmm. I sometimes write those down. Sometimes just say them to myself, depending on how, what kind of time I've got. There you go. Yeah, I have a similar routine. I mean, in the morning with. Give me the Tim Ferriss morning routine. Uh, all right. I'll, Bullet I'll, points. I'll, I'll, I'll bang through it. So, wake up. Uh, I have. This is my current morning routine. So, wake up, have the supplements that generally are absorbed on an empty stomach better than not. Uh, feed the dog with some sardine oil on top of kibble. Molly. Then, Molly. Awesome. Uh, she's so precious. She's great. Uh, she's getting big. And then sit down. Meditate for 20 minutes. Usually set it for 21 minutes because I want to have 20 minutes, but I usually fidget and like fuss with my legs and kind of crack my back and so on for the first minute. Uh, then I'll have like a kind of three minute decompress after that where I just focus on the sounds and so on around me. Get up, uh, set tea at, I have a Breville uh, tea, I guess, a tea maker of sorts, 185 degrees. Then I will make tea with generally pu'er or oolong tea, plus turmeric and ginger. Uh, I will sit down with that, put some coconut oil, usually two tablespoons of coconut oil, which is about 60 to 65% medium chain triglycerides, for some nice ketones to the brain, because keep in mind I haven't really had breakfast yet. Uh, sometimes I'll have a whey protein when I first wake up if I'm training that day or if I just trained the night before. Then sit down with something called the five minute journal or morning pages mm -hmm. and I will yeah, journal yeah, and I'll hit the gratitude points, a few things that I'm grateful for that day. Uh, being sure to pick one that is a very small thing. I picked this up from Tony Robbins, which is like the cloud outside my window right now or like the cup of tea or something very small so that they're not all large things. Yeah. Again, coming back to the celebrating yeah. little wins. And uh, that will help me also prioritize for the day or just get my thoughts on paper so that the monkey mind isn't rattling around in its cage yeah. all day long. I can actually get something done. Uh, then I will usually do some type of gymnastic warm up uh, just for the joints, really, a few yeah, minutes of the like my body scapular circles, wrist stretches. A uh, handful of like maybe planche leans and uh, they're called you know, cat camels if for the, those people who want to look this kind of stuff up and some rotational stuff and then I'm off to the races. And I'll very how, long does, how long does that take for you? Because people are uh, like, oh shit, I've got three kids. There's, this is totally undoable. Yeah, wake up earlier. Wake up earlier. That's the same I thing mean, I mean, look, it's, it's like, just like I am a lazy bastard. I and look in to state the obvious, I'm in a very fortunate position where I can. Uh, I have a lot of flexibility in my schedule, but it's like you look at the, the person who wrote The Kite Runner, all right? Khalid Husseini, I think his name is. Full-time doctor, brutal schedule. He woke up an hour earlier, and he put pen to paper for like 45 minutes every morning, and he wrote yeah. a book that turned into a massive, yeah. iconic bestseller. It's and a movie, like, and, a th yeah, and yeah. a movie, and everything else. Like, you make the time. You're not yeah. going to find the time. You make the time. And I should also say, it's like, I know people with three, four, five kids like Leo Babauta, Zen Habits. I know people who have like real jobs, people in finance, people who have like nine to five 
uh, you know, non-managerial entrepreneurial CEO jobs who make it work really, really, really well. Uh, and you have to make time. And I think that, I don't remember the, I think it was, uh, I might be getting W.H. Auden, A-U-D-E-N. I want to say this is the quote, the right attribution, but like the routine, uh, like for, in the intelligent man, routine is a sign of ambition or something like that. And of course it applies to men and women. Like routine will save you. It's like if you're trying to reinvent the wheel and reorder things every morning, you're dead in the water. Yeah. It's not going to work, especially with kids. Oh, as a creative, I used to fight any system. Like, oh, it's just meant to keep me yeah. down. And then you yeah. realize that it actually makes your life that it's much like, no, better. Have yeah. a recipe. Yeah. So it's like, that's yeah. why when you ask me like, what my morning routine is, I'm like, this is exactly, yeah. this is the algorithm, right? What's an algorithm? We use this word a lot now. And like, journalists use it a lot. It's like, what the fuck? What is an algorithm? Algorithm is, and computer scientists, you can rip me apart here, but it's, it's a series of steps intended to produce a replicable result, right? And it's a recipe, in effect. And it's like, you need that in your routine. Yeah. For like my evening routine, I have the same, I mean, same thing. It's like locked down. I have a very particular evening routine. It's like my, my hot bath with Epsom salts, with ice bath alternating. This is gonna sound weird, but I've been in your bathroom. That, it does sound weird, but yes. <laughs> it, it fits a few people. It's not yeah, like we're- It's not a one person. We're not laying on top of each other in the standard issue bathtub, gazing uh, yeah, into each a, other's eyes. You have an awesome tub, it's great. The rose petals were nice. Yeah, I'm kidding. no rose petals. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it. routine will save you. The crazier you are, the more neurotic you are, the more important routine is. Speaking of someone who I think is both of those things. Me? No, 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 me, me, me. You too, you just keep, yeah, it, on, you keep sure. it under wraps better I, than I, I do. do. A little bit better. <laughs> so, uh, evening routine, uh, without going into the detail, I just think it's interesting. Um, you know, spent some time with Ariana Huffington. She's really a huge sleep advocate mm -hmm. and the sort of end of day routine, how mm -hmm. powerful that is. And she does the same thing, you take a bath and turn down all screens, hide those things 30 minutes before you need to go to bed. Mm -hmm. um, I recently did a little video that's not out yet, but about eye, like eye mask, earplugs, stuff like that. Yeah, I'm not too. a good sleeper. It's Game changer and less drinking for me has been a really powerful thing. Mm -hmm. Any what couple of sprinkle a couple. Oh uh, yeah, other tweaks that I find helpful. Oh, I left make my bed out of the morning routine. Mm -hmm. I always make my bed in the morning. That was I uh, got that from some former Navy SEAL commanders as well as I think it's Don Depani, former monk. It's it, it really sets the day off on the right foot. Yeah, it seems weird. A little thing and then like, it's like a minute. I don't yeah. like tuck it. It's not four seasons. Like, but <laughs> I have a large blanket that kind of covers the whole thing. It makes it look fine. But at night, and I bring it up because the night triggers thinking of the made bed. Because when you come back in, if you've had a difficult day, you come back in and like your bedroom is just in complete disarray. I find that psychologically uh, unsettling. It's just. Yeah, it, it's it's not a good bookend to your day. Versus you come into a space yeah. that's. Yeah. So a couple of things. I have, uh, I think it's called a Dom D O H M. I want to say it's the spelling, white noise machine, that is very very. And if you search sound machine in my name, it'll probably pop up. But I don't make it. <laughs> but uh, it's a small device about yay large, and you can you can adjust the airflow, and it just provides a consistent background noise for mm -hmm. sleeping. Um, that's not so much my routine as the sleep setup. I also have an, a sleep mask. I think it's called the Sleep Master. <laughs> Cheesy name, but it wraps over the ears as opposed to behind, like on top of the ears, which I find very uncomfortable. And it has Velcro and it also basically buffers sound additionally. I have these disposable, which I tend to reuse at least a couple times, 3M construction earplugs. The orange ones? 
Uh, yeah, you, orange yeah. or yellow. Yeah. yeah, they're really, really same. That's what they're I great. Just, they're powerful. Little they're really powerful. Food, they? And uh, in terms of evening routine, I'll just throw out two things. So the first is uh, definitely less screen time. And if you're gonna use screen uh, laptop, let's say, then use an app like Flux, which will change the wavelength of light that is emitted from your screen so that it's Matt, not you use that, don't you? Matt's behind the camera right there. Yeah, he likes yeah. Flux. You yeah, know, he's Flux like, what's this orange green? You're yeah, like, oh, yeah, yeah. Flux. So yeah, tip for people who, like CEOs, uh, don't let your designers work on stuff if they're using Flux past a certain hour because the colors will be fooked. <laughs> um, this has happened to a number of people I know, but uh, great app. And then the, uh, the two pieces I would say is hot bath with Epsom salt is just a must-have for me. And I will very often listen to Every night, Tim? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. if I'm at home every night, and I, I will usually sit down and listen to a podcast or an audiobook. Uh, and uh, I'll listen to Hardcore History, I'll listen to Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, which is short, uh, or I'll listen to any number of audiobooks. Now the, so let's talk about the content of the audiobook or TV show, uh, or book. Here's where I'm going. I find it, for me, I have experienced lifelong onset insomnia. And this seems to be hereditary. And males in my family almost all have onset insomnia. It's meaning they won't necessarily wake up in the middle of the night, but it takes them forever, me included, to get to sleep. Typically because I'm running through the things I didn't do, the things I'm gonna do tomorrow, the, the problems I'd like to solve, the creative stuff I'd like to figure out, and I just can't turn off those hamster wheels. They're just constantly going. The way you turn those off is not by reading, say, a business book before you go to bed. That's oh going to make that's just going to pour gasoline on the yeah. fire. Uh, the way that I can hijack that process and enable myself to sleep is by focusing on fiction. So watching, say, a great TV series that I just finished binge watching, which is Black Mirror. It's a little dark, maybe not the best pre-bed yeah. stuff for everybody, but Black Mirror or. Uh, a book like uh, The Baron in the Trees, which is a short story by Italo Calvino about this young boy who gets in a huge argument with his father and goes up into the trees and never comes down for the rest of his life. Uh, and it's, it's a great fiction book. And it will pull you into this sort of surreal space of uh, storytelling that temporarily disables this problem-solving apparatus. And then I find it easier to get to sleep. Interesting. Uh, speaking of sleep, and you said it a couple times, I, I, I put a thumbtack in it a while ago, and I want to come back to it now, which is the voices in your head. <laughs> Dear Tim. They never stop. They never stop. Okay, but let's let's talk about controlling them for a little bit, because you know Brene Brown is a mutual friend of both of ours. Uh, talks about them as the gremlins. Uh, Ariana, who I already mentioned, talks about that um, annoying. Is it annoying? What's the roommate? What does she say? Obnoxious roommate. Like that's always sort of back there, um, and I think for both, you know, I find it, it almost a universal. People are at one end of the spectrum: high performers, uh, high degree of self-confidence, maybe even actualized. They're like that's just a beating them up all the time. And on the other end, people who don't, cons you know, have low self-esteem. They're like, you're not good enough. You're not this. You're not that. And it's weird how we're all in this together because, it, regardless of your where you are in your human journey, there's this voice inside of so many people's heads. Mm -hmm. I found that really interesting, and, and it, go, it does in part parlay into that, the meditation conversation we already had, but you undoubtedly have voices in your head, and the reason I'm bringing this up, because the people at home, 
Tim is so successful. He's got it made. He's got all these number one New York Times bestsellers. He's got millions of people that pay attention to him. He, you know, we love his podcast. I can't believe that he has voices in his head too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry, it's funny, but it's uh, true. Well, no, the voices in my head just told me this great joke. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I struggle a lot. I think that it's part of the human condition, and uh, if if people want a real snapshot of what like a day of say a bottom looks like for me, well, there are two posts. Uh, well, one is called, uh, if you search for anything along these lines, it'll pop up, but productivity hacks for the neurotic, manic, depressive, and crazy, and then in parentheses like me. Uh, that gives a pretty good snapshot. Uh, and then there's another one, which is, it's going to sound very morbid, but I think it's just practical thoughts on suicide. And it has a very dark story from my past. That I, and I think that blog post is arguably, for me at least, the most meaningful and important thing that I've ever written, period. Uh, so I've had some very deep struggles, so, but, but we can separate between like the deep, dark, downward spiral uh, set of voices in the head, uh, which is like an angry mob that chases you down and like corners you in an alley. That's one type. But then there's the obnoxious roommate yeah. who's just like tapping you on the shoulder while you're, you're trying to enough. do anything yeah. and uh, who's, who's telling you that you're, you're not... You're not trying hard enough. You're not thinking yeah. big enough. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. Now, it's not always a negative thing, right? So I think that the ego, for instance, and I, I don't want to get too esoteric, but it's like, oh, ego is bad. Ego is bad. I'm like, well, I'm not convinced it's 100% bad. I think that the dose makes the poison and that uh, having some type of drive, and we're primates. You can read Chimpanzee Politics if you want a real look into this. It's a great book. A lot of politicians read it. I'm not kidding. Uh, to like learn how to navigate the Senate and Congress and stuff, but the uh, the way that we function in the world is positionally. Right? So if you look at like positional economics, we're constantly comparing and contrasting. So to some extent, you're always going to have that voice in your head. You know, even if I'm sure, and they might not admit it, but if we were to track down like the best known. Uh, Zen slash Buddhist slash mindfulness teachers. Like I'm sure part of them's like God. Just Gary is like ten percent. Like Lord Rinpoche me. is so much better meditating than me. <laughs> God, that guy. Look at his yeah. robe. It's so clean and orange or whatever. We all have it. Yeah. And so I think that uh, one refrain that I've been saying to myself, <laughs> very literally, to my own obnoxious roommate, is because I think there's like the observer. There's like me. Then there's the obnoxious roommate, if that makes yeah, sense. Fair. I mean, you, you, we could talk about the id and all this stuff. Waking Up by Sam Harris is actually a great book that delves into some of this, and I'm, uh, I'm not saying what I am saying is reflective of, of Sam's writing. But what, what I have tried not to do is what I would call retreating into story. And retreating into story for me is I do something Let's, let's think of a, of a good example. Uh, not known for my patience. I'm a pretty impatient guy. I like, like, I'm, I'm very, very aggressive. The trains run on time. Yeah, trains run on time. Like, on time means on time. It does not mean five minutes late. Like, on time is late. You know, mm -hmm. I'm like one of those stern dad types with myself and with other people. And so let's say that someone doesn't meet my expectations and I've hired them or contracted them 
And I don't fly off the handle, but I have a very curt, abrasive conversation or send off this missive via email that is just clearly 20% unnecessary prickliness. And then it turn then like their feelings get hurt or they come out throwing haymaker like counter punches and I'm just like, God, I always do this. Okay. And then I retreat into story. And it's like, I all oh, I always do this. Remember the time I did this and did that. I'm I am this. I am that. Like that is a point for me to pause. Like I always or I am is I've learned to kind of time out. That's a trigger for you to go, okay. As, as much as possible, and I'm not perfect, but I'll be like, wait a second. Like, am I retreating into my story? Am I like taking that old record off the shelf that is like Tim's pessimism regarding, you know, <laughs> self-image and anger. And it's like putting that on and just like rocking out to that. It's like, no, 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 no. You can choose the record. Like, no, no, no. Put that record back. And like, if you're getting, I remember some, I, I read this. It's like, if you're if you're pissed off, like rather than saying like, oh, I'm pissed off. It's like, no, you're doing pissed off. What is you're pissed, playing off? pissed off? You're yeah. playing, you're playing yeah. the role of pissed off. And uh, retreating into story could also be like, oh my God, so-and-so, they always blah, blah, blah. And I was listening in my bath, um, and this isn't quite nonfiction, but it was this, uh, this rec old recording by Wayne Dyer. <laughs> and he said- Wayne's uh, awesome. Yeah, it's just an incredible delivery also. And one of the things, the things he said, I think it was like no limit, be becoming a no limit person. It's kind of like a cheesy old recording, but I like those cheesy old recordings sometimes. And he talked about, in effect, like people behave the way you teach them to behave. People treat you the way you train them to treat you. And so taking the step back um, and using like the I always, I am, they always, they are is just an as a cue to help me to pause and be like, well, wait a second. Their reactions are outside of my control, but what can I do to train myself or them to minimize this stress that I'm experiencing. But yeah, the voices, I mean, uh, look, yeah, I, I think, I think that the, to, to come back to the original question though, that I struggle as much as the next person, but I'm trending in the right direction at getting better at not necessarily eliminating those voices, but recognizing them as the obnoxious roommate. I don't think those voices ever go, maybe if you're a monk, yeah. They go away, but just being able to have a set of tools, yeah. and that's really what I'm trying to tap into here for the folks who are listening or watching is like, hey, you're not alone. These yeah. things happen to even wildly successful people. Totally. And, yeah. uh, and here's a toolkit to not solve all your problems, but to get you moving in the right direction. Uh, it's, it's very helpful. Sweet. Now, I want to talk about, we, we've talked before about various books. We're not going to talk about your books. So we're talking about your podcast. I'm tired of talking about my book. As as <laughs> someone you 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 mentioned, just sitting on the front lines of Ryan's book, uh, and you said the front lines a couple of different times on a couple of different things. Uh, I got to sit front lines on uh, your podcast. It was one of your original like early guests, as we talked about. Kevin was your first guinea pig. I might have been your second or your third. Yep. Uh, you you've become really good at it. You having fun? Thank you. I'm having a blast. I'm having a really great time and. Uh, there, there are many points at which that is an engineering decision uh, because complexity will invite itself to your table every week. But you could do this, you could try this, 
and there are five people out of a million who are complaining very loudly about this and you could do this and like there's so many temptations uh, as I think I'm probably a uh, what is it like a maximizer and not a satisficer I think it is in the paradox of choice it's another book uh, I'm perfectionist and so my inclination is to be like well I know like no one else is gonna notice but I'm gonna notice and so I want to put in like the last two percent it's 98% there, but the last 2%. And that's going to require another 10 hours a week. That's my inclination. And I've, there, there's a place and a time for that, but it's, it's less and less compelling to me. Uh, so the, the enjoyment, almost always, if I do the podcast and I find myself, for whatever reason, a little down or lacking in energy related to it, that's a problem. And I, I call an audible, sit down, I'm like, all right, what is What's causing me stress right yeah, now? What's going on? And it's like, if it's sponsorships, it's like, okay, well, like, I'm happy to lose half of the sponsors. Just like, change the terms. If there's a term in our agreements that's causing problems, change it. And if they're like, we're going to walk, it's like, okay. <laughs> it's like, and the, you know, the general rule in negotiating is like, he who cares the least wins. And so, or she, right? But um, so it's like, okay, then walk. And they're like, uh, oh shit, just call their bluff. Like, okay, we'll take your turn. Uh, or if it's the programming or the scheduling, it's like, all right, well, maybe I'll use uh, some type of meeting software. Um, like I think there is a schedule once or something like that where people pick their own blocks that you could use to simplify the, the guest recruitment process. Maybe it's like, well, you know, we're constantly answering the same questions and like that's becoming a huge drag on time. Let's put together like a guest FAQ. prep sheet. Yeah. Exactly, like FAQ. I didn't send you yours, by the way. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> you didn't that's have right. to prepare. That's okay. Uh, and it's, so it has been a lot of fun, but to, to make it, to allow it to continue to be fun as it grows requires some architecting. Fair. Yeah. Let's talk about your specific, some of your favorite questions. You've had some great guests. I'm, why don't you yeah. just drop a couple of your favorite guests? Uh, you know, so the, do, you wanna, do you not want to do that? No, I'll totally do it. Like okay. the, Tim, the Tim Ferriss show has been uh, a work in progress. And uh, part of what keeps it fun for me is having a wide spectrum, right? So for sure. like Jamie Foxx as an entertainer is, the guy's just hilarious. amazing. Hilarious. I mean, so incredible. So we did that episode in his sound studio at home with like impromptu music and imitations and impersonations was just incredible. Uh, you know, all the way to the opposite end, and this is an episode that actually has not come out yet, but did an interview with B.J. Miller, who's, so I like doing interviews with people that the audience will almost certainly not know. Yeah. You know, like I did one with Patrick Arnold, who's like the world's most famous black market drug designer, Barry Bonds, Marion Jones, like he was the guy. Uh, and B.J. Miller is a triple amputee who runs the San Francisco Hospice Project, or the Zen Hospice Project, excuse me, based in San Francisco. And he's helped roughly a thousand people die. And he's, he's, he's a young dude, but he's gone through some just incredible wow. trauma himself. He's electrocuted at Princeton, actually. Uh, in an accident, lost three limbs, and that interview is deep, and there's just there's a lot to be gleaned from it. Uh, so that would be one that I really enjoyed, and I'm just naming a few along the spectrum, right? Because there's my favorite the, thing about it is uh, there's a philosophy that's the same as mine. Some people really fancy and famous that you can like, oh, what's it like to be that? That's sort of weird. People that everybody knows, yeah, yeah. and then people that no one would know, but you like, I know you're gonna find this person fucking fascinating. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like you have like the Arnold Schwarzenegger, where everybody's gonna yeah. know Arnold. <laughs> 
Uh, what do you mean? Hopefully I get some stories out of him that people haven't heard, which, which was the case. But then you'll have somebody who say, very well known in a tiny subset, not tiny, I mean he's well known anyway, but like Kevin Kelly, who's extremely well respected in the tech world, an incredibly gifted writer, has an Amish beard, an incredible family. Like I really look up to him because he's not only, he's designed an incredible life for himself. And he's one of the most astute, accurate technology predictors and forecasters, like as a futurist, I've ever seen any, I, seen anywhere. And I'm in Silicon Valley. There are very few people, like maybe Ray Kurzweil in a number of capacities. Kevin Kelly's right up there. And uh, so I think he's the world's most interesting man. <laughs> I like the real, the real version. So I did you know, two or three part series with him. Wow. Um, Derek, uh, you know, Derek Sivers, another one, like the philosopher king of kind of PHP programming, although he did a bunch of Ruby on Rails stuff, who built up CD Baby, sold it, gave it all to a music uh, charitable trust for music education, and then disappeared and now lives in the middle of nowhere in New Zealand. And it's like, okay, let's, let's talk to Derek, one of my most popular episodes to date. Cool. And what's been really reassuring to me, or life-affirming, is that those episodes, like there's still a place, if you put out good content, like good, Art, good craft, good work is the best SEO in the world. Like, it still works. It takes People are like, oh, it's too crowded. There are too many podcasts. There are too many of this. Too many photographers. Too many. There's still a place if you put out really good work. And I'm not, I'm not putting this all on me, but it's like when I have a guest who really performs. I mean, meaning they just like deliver super detailed, tactical stories, anecdotes, routines, things that my listeners can use. It's like a Derek Sivers or somebody who has zero, next to no recognition compared to say Jamie Foxx can do as well. It's yeah. nuts in terms of the downloads and the listens. Like that stuff spreads. And uh, that's another thing that's just made me excited again to get back in the game of kind of creating some type of, of, of editorial or work I is that. that. To see like there's still, there's still a place. Like, I was told when I started podcasting, whatever it was, a year and a half, I think it was actually, I don't know, one to two years ago, ah, it's too crowded. It's done. No, you can't, it's too late. And you're going to hear that all the time. When you do yeah, anything, anything I want to do this, ah, oh, it's too late. That's too late. Oh, Wait, that ship has sailed. And it's like, no, you just have to be different and you have to be better. In some capacity, if you do that and you stick with it, and you screw up like I did in the beginning, you get too drunk on multiple occasions <laughs> in like your first three episodes because you're so nervous and it's super sloppy and people are like, dude, it sounds like your wine bottle has a separate mic on it, like tone <laughs> it down. Uh, and you keep it fun for yourself, like make it fun for you and you will find an audience. It has been the other thing I've learned. Like if I want to throw like chimpanzee screeches in the middle of a podcast as a transition just to see what the hell people do you know going after the absurd again like this one listener actually said she freaked out she was in a retail store and she took her bag and threw it across the <laughs> across the store because it was so loud still working on my levels um it's like i can do that you know if i want to make like weird mogwai noises in the beginning of an intro what is a mogwai noise mogwai is like You know, gremlins, but yeah, yeah, the gremlins yeah, yeah. are the bad guys. The Mogwai right, are the, the good guys. The so like gizmo. Ones. Yeah, gizmo. Gizmo yeah. noises. Uh, then I can do that. And it's just like, it, it's, it's giving me such a sense of freedom because yeah. with the books, and uh, maybe you feel this way, maybe you don't, but like, oh, I, I have so much work out there as a writer 
Number one, I've developed like tropes or tricks or frameworks that I've become a little reliant on as crutches. They, they work really well. Like I know how to get people to pull through a chapter and enjoy it with stories, even if there's dense material. But like I feel like I'm getting a little stale, which is why I'm doing a writing workshop this summer, in fact, as a student. But the podcast is, is such a different element. It's like, okay, well, you've been a skier, but like now you're going to be a swimmer or you're going to be an acro yogi. Okay, now you can start with beginner eyes again and fuck around. Yeah. Sorry, I'm dropping the F-bomb a lot No, today. bring Long it. Island. Long bring Island, it. sorry. And that freedom and to play, to make, to experiment, then infuses everything else that has kind of grown stale or less interesting to you. So it's like now my writing is more playful. It's great, man. I, I'm having a lot of fun with the podcast. Those things are connected, by the way. Like the amount Super of enjoyment and play that you're having is there's a correlation, for at least for me and many people I know, to, to great work. Totally. Um, so one of the things you said is great stories that maybe they haven't heard on some other podcast version of them. So tell us a story here that is that you really haven't told somewhere else. It doesn't have to be, <laughs> doesn't have to well, be horrible. I don't know. Well, it's like I'll on tell you command. what. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a refining question related to that while I answer your other question about questions that I ask on my podcast. Great. So I'll give a couple of the So these questions. were going to be, two, these were two distinct things in yeah. my mind. We'll let them be. No, no, no. I'm going to, because I'm going to buy you time. The question I'd like to ask is what type of story? Give me like some Yeah, yeah. Some, some, some creative constraints. Some categories. Okay. Creative sure. constraints. Sure. So questions, some of the questions I like to ask on the podcast while, while you're just stating on that are... You know, if you could have a billboard anywhere, what would you put on it? And I'm sure I borrowed this from somebody else. Like, I'm not making all these things up. Oh, for sure. We're, uh, we're all what, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self, 30-year-old self, say 40-year-old self? But, but not just the refinement I made to that, which I think is important, is place us somewhere. Like, where were you? What were you doing? And then give me the advice. Because it's so contextually dependent. Uh, there are some other ones that are hit or miss that I borrowed from, say, like Peter Thiel. You know, roughly, like, what do you believe that other people think is crazy? That's his like classic interview interview question, question yeah. right? Uh, and uh, so I borrow from many, many different places. When you think of the word success, who's the first person who comes to mind, and why? Right? That's that's these are some standard questions. What book have you gifted the most to other people? So that's that's a question I came. I'm with. glad you didn't have many of these questions formulated when I was on your show. Yeah. There's a lot of those are hard. <laughs> They're hard. They're hard. Some, They're, some of them are some of them are hard. Uh, and the gifted is important because if you ask someone what is their favorite book or favorite books, there's a primacy and recency effect, meaning they'll tend to remember the most yeah. recent books they read, and they'll, especially if they're caught on their heels, they'll just pick something that they read in the last year or two. Whereas if yeah. you ask like, what book have you gifted the most to other people, usually it's an extremely short list of like two to four books that are their go-to gift books. So those are a few. Uh, so stories I haven't told. Stories you haven't told. Tell me a story you haven't told about a struggle with writing. Because I feel like there's a lot of glamor. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just continuing to name drop other people here. Uh, Brene Brown talks about gold-plated grit. Like, oh, there was this time, shit got so hard, it was so real, but then I made it, made it through, and everything is awesome. And they go back to the awesome story again. Yeah, yeah. And so you just like, it's like, oh, I'm so vulnerable for like a quarter of a second, and then I go back to, so <laughs> I, I believe that people think of you first and foremost as an author in the sort of the guinea pig way yeah. that you framed yourself, but clearly you've had a lot of hardship in there. And so talk to us about uh, something that people wouldn't know yeah. about that time period that might reveal something 
<laughs> about you? Oh, God. Uh, there's a story that comes to mind. I'm not sure what it reveals would be very good. Uh, no, I'm not looking for good. I'm looking this for is, this, this might be the closest I've come to, like, double leg drop kicking someone. <laughs> uh, I in, just pictured that. In the last, like, awesome like Lucha Libre style. Yeah. In the last <laughs> few years. Uh, so this was probably 2011. Because this was just like, I felt like I was at the breaking point. Like really physically, mentally, emotionally, just at the breaking point. I was at the last like 30% of The 4-Hour Chef. It's like a 700-page book. It's a monstrous book. That was nice. Thousands of photographs, Which hundreds that, of original illustrations. Like, you did that class, The 4-Hour Life, but yeah. it was really in the, in the launch of The 4-Hour Chef, Chef that's on right. Creative Live. We yeah. should link to that somewhere around here. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a really difficult time for me. It was a very complex project. It was a three-year project, in effect, that had been compressed down to a year and a half. And I'm very happy with how it came out. Uh, we pulled it off, but uh, there were some really big hiccups along the way. And one of the biggest challenges was publishing is still very uh, archaic in a way. There's, there aren't there are not fantastic digital tools for providing fast edits to really complex layouts. I know there are some options for like website review and things like that, but it's, it, it's, a, it's too labor intensive compared to say pen and ink on paper uh, if you're going to be making hundreds of edits, like line edits and whatnot. So what would happen is I would get shipped these printouts or they would get, actually we would print them out in San Francisco or wherever I happen to be, these two-page spreads. And then I would go through and I would hand edit. Oof. Like I'll make hundreds of hand edits. Copy it, because you do not want one single point of failure with uh, one copy. Send it back. They would then incorporate those changes into the InDesign doc oh. and then repeat the process. Now, uh, I had a really tough experience with this book packager who was hired to help with this. And when I would get the, the next round of edits, very often only about 70% of my changes made it in. I would notice oh, that. How are you tracking So that? now, oh what do I have to do? I have to take it. out both versions and oh. I have to go through line by line. This is a 700 page book and compare each to see what got missed. missed. And I had to do this dozens of times. Uh, to the point where like my girlfriend at the time didn't believe me and I showed her a couple pages and she's like, I feel like a sixth grader would do a better job with this. Like, I can't believe you're having to go through this. You know that book publisher is listening to this. Right? No, 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 and it wasn't the publisher's fault. <laughs> I mean, the, the packager. The, the packager, hey, look, I, just at least I'm yeah. not mentioning you by name. So it's, you should thank your lucky stars for that because it was a fucking disaster. And I found myself at one point, I'd committed to, uh, so keep in mind, like my job as a writer has become somewhat more complex as things have gone on because when I wrote the four-hour work week, that's all I really had to do. I mean, I was running there my company go. at the yeah. time, but it was a few hours a week. And now, like the, four to be precise, and the then the four-hour body, it's like, okay, now Tim's starting to do a lot of angel investing, make other commitments, advising, et cetera. The four-hour chef, it's like, okay, now the, like, the doors have been blown wide open. I have I'll, like a hundred times more inbound than I did during the four-hour work week. So I had made a commitment, this is getting to a story, made a commitment to speak at some event in Southern California like a year before it actually showed up. It's funny how those come back and bite and then I'm and, and so I, I get back like 50 pages, 
print it out, and I realize half the edits haven't been made. And at that point, I'm probably running on like four or five hours of sleep for a week. And now I have the speaking engagement to go to. And so I go down to, to Southern California. I do my speaking gig. That's fine. You know, I, 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 I put on a smiley face and get it done. And, you know, be a good soldier. Knock that out. Then I have to go back and basically pull an all-nighter to work on these edits. And I'm at this kind of run-down hotel. The hotel room is tiny. It's just like the, the, the desk isn't big enough for me to spread stuff out to work on the, on the various spreads. So uh, at that point, too, I was still using kind of like ephedrine, caffeine, aspirin stuff to like keep the engines running, which is really horrible for you. Hard, it's so hard, bad hard. for your adrenal system and everything, which makes you extremely grumpy. And... So I'm like running on nothing except for like the ECA stack and <laughs> I've just finished my speaking gig. It's like two in the morning and I'm working on all this stuff. And in the lobby, I remember very clearly the lobby in this hotel, really high ceilings and it was a, it was a rundown kind of shoddy place. And the one light, there's one light on the ceiling that landed on one table and I was doing all my work and the light goes out. <laughs> And it's like 2.30 now, and I'm just like, oh my God, I'm not even close to done. I'm like 40% there. My God, God, okay. <sighs> so I get up, and I walk the you know, length of the lobby, which is a pretty big lobby, a couple hundred feet to the front desk. And there's like one poor guy who's the, working the at nighttime. 3 in the morning, the, the night guy. dude, yeah. And there's somebody checking in who's clearly like been traveling all day, really run down, not looking happy, some like bedraggled traveling salesman or whatever getting checked in. And so I'm kind of like standing off to the side, like 20 or 30 feet away. <laughs> I don't know why I'm telling this story. And, uh, and the, the guy, so the, the guy who's getting checked in, the guest, was like looking down at his phone. The, the, the employee behind the counter looks at me and he's like, gives me this like, yes sir, kind of head nod hand wave, which the guy checking in didn't see. So I say, well, well actually there's just one problem. I'm, I, I'm gonna have to pull it all there. I'm working on this thing. The light is out. Now the guy getting checked in now looks up and he's like, who the fuck is this guy? And he goes, hey, hey. And I'm like, yes. And he goes, fuck you. <laughs> and I was just like, I didn't know what to do. I was just like, I, do, I, do, do I kill this guy? Is like, this the devil lady? Like he doesn't look good at sprawling. Like should I, should I just like fireman's carry him into the coffee table? And I didn't know what to do. And I was like, old Tim would have attacked this person. Like new Tim, hopefully, like, Needs TM, hadn't done it yet, would, would do something. And I didn't know what to do, so I went. He kissed him. And I just sort of like blew him a kiss. And I was like, I'm not going to attack him, but I hope he attacks me right now. So I will like literally, it will be like Discovery Channel, like hyena tearing apart a carcass. And uh, then that'll be like the end of my career. Or who knows, start of a new career, maybe Charlie Sheen style. And so uh, ultimately, the guy like, was thrown off by that, didn't know what to, to do. <laughs> and then the guy behind the counter is like, oh shit, like what do we do here? I don't know how to manage this. So I was like, and so I just walked back and like sat in the darkness, <laughs> looking at this all this sad, undone. This is a sad, <laughs> sad scene. You asked about a struggle. I so I like, I just like sat in the darkness, like trying to cool off. And I'm just like, let me let that guy leave so there's no homicide. And I'm just sitting there looking at all these, all this undone homework and thinking to myself like, Never again will I do it this way. It's like never again will I sign up to do this this way, and that's you haven't, uh, and I haven't. Like, and that's that was you know 2000, late 2010, 2011. Book came out 2012, and um, 
very, I'm very proud of the book, but it's just like, man, that was kind of the last nail in the coffin with respect to how I relate to a lot of big business stuff. And uh, meaning, meaning like having a publisher who owns rights yeah. that inhibit your ability to do certain things with your own work. That's one of the, my favorite things about this show a long time ago, starting it up, just there's no rules, no one owns it, like I could do whatever I want, there's yeah. no like beholden to no one, like you said, sponsor yeah. doesn't want to play, like uh, okay. Okay, goodbye. You're done. <laughs> and now that you know, you clearly have built yourself an amazing platform. So you've, yeah. you've built on some freedom in your own. Yeah, and the world. blog, you know, the blog, I have complete freedom. The, and the podcast, though, the podcast is really, was the first art project, which is really how I view it, yeah. in a long time for me. The first new art project where I could do whatever I wanted. People are like, I'm trying to listen to this with my kids. And you say the F-bomb. You need to clean up your language. I'm like, you need to find a new podcast. Sorry. Like, this has to be fun for me. And I'm not going to censor myself to, like, suit the Mr. Rogers program. It's just, like, not, this is not how this works. How important is that for you, uh, freedom, artistic freedom? <sighs> Folks at home. So uh, the freedom is, uh, it's a tricky term. The, the, ability, the ability to do whatever I want let me rephrase it. The ability to play in any way that I want, I enjoy. Having certain constraints, however, I think is necessary for me to actualize my highest creative potential. What's a constraint you put on yourself for, so the, for the podcast? So constraint could be, well, okay, you have an hour and a half. And if somebody can only do 30 minutes, you have 30 minutes. Uh, constraints might be, uh, a form of training or practice. It's like, okay, for my first, say, 20 episodes, 30 episodes, they were mostly over the phone. Why? Because I could have all of my notes in Evernote. I could have all my questions in it's front of me. Right there. I could have a notebook for taking notes about things I wanted to come back to. You do that in person, it's, it's not quite the same. It's very disruptive sometimes to do that. You know, if we're talking, I have a laptop here, <laughs> right. uh, it's, it throws off the entire dynamics. So practicing, deciding, okay, the next 10 episodes are all going to be in person. What are you going to do? You're going to have to change your method. You're going to have to figure out a new approach. You're going to have to maybe memorize more or not memorize anything, depending on who you talk to, right? Like Neil Strauss does an incredible amount of preparation for his Rolling Stone or New York Times interviews. Tons of review, tons of research, and then he folds it up and he never looks at it during the interview, right? Uh, so like deter testing different approaches. I might try his approach, then I might try someone else's approach. Uh, but constraints would be, for instance, uh, ensuring that I talk about there's something sensitive. It's not a gotcha show, but like let's say there's a sensitive subject that I think will produce an answer or a story that will be valuable to my listeners. It has to be valuable. For sure, value is the key uh, takeaway. How do I navigate the conversation and like ride the wave to get to that? That's a constraint. It's a requirement. Right? That's weird. I do the same thing. And, what's, the, what's the one risky thing that I'm going to go to? Yeah. yeah. And um, so I know we're going to talk a lot about masturbation later. Um, the, 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 uh, or something like that, right? So it's kind of like right meow, like, like super troopers. Like, yeah, so, meow. so I decided I wanted to say masturbation, which I just did twice. And so I've checked that box three times, in, in this conversation. In this three times, fantastic. We, there is a thing with threes. So, uh, but the, with writing, for instance, just the form factor itself. It's like you have, you have to use words. 
And in The 4-Hour Chef, I changed that and I allowed myself to use visuals. But I would enjoy going back to text only. It's like, okay, like a John McPhee. And like, John McPhee is one of my favorite writers, M-C-P-H-E-E, -E, Pulitzer Prize winner, staff writer at The New Yorker. And where, where someone else might resort to a bunch of different diagrams, his thinking and his writing is so precise and so beautifully elegant, it's just unnecessary. In fact, it would detract because he's allowing the reader to create much higher resolution, uh, impressive meaning, impressing on the memory uh, imagery than, the, than would otherwise be possible on a printed black and white page. So it's like that would be a very strong constraint. It's like, no, you can't use visuals, hey. only words. Right? Or if I'm writing, sometimes I will notice that there's a word I use as a crutch or a phrase that I use as a crutch. That having been said is one of my crutch phrases. That having been said, comma, blah, 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 blah. Okay, you're not allowed to use it. Not allowed. Uh, dashes. I like to use dashes. Oh, God, I'm a, I love a dash. Oh, they're mm. so nice. I love a dash. Like M dashes. Yeah. Just love M dashes. Ooh. So it's like, all right, you're not allowed oh. to use dashes. Like you can't use dashes and you can't use parentheticals. Clean up your fucking writing. You know, it's like okay, that would be another that would be another uh, type of, of of parameter. Or well, there's a million. And, yeah. And oh, here's another one. Like that that I noticed through writing that I then used to try to change my speaking. I noticed that I used pretty as an adverb. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. She's she's pretty smart. Oh yeah, yeah. He's pretty successful. And I was like, sloppy Ferris, so lazy. So what I forced myself to do when I was speaking is if I said pretty, because it would sometimes slip out and I'd be like, ah. Oh. There it is again. I'd have to say fucking after that. So it'd be like, oh yeah, she's pretty fucking interesting. <laughs> and uh, after you do that like seven or 10 times over like a two hour dinner, you're like, all right. All right. Your brain just like <laughs> cauterizes pretty right out <laughs> of the conversation. Um, so I love positive constraints, uh, creative constraints, uh, because it's just like in dance, for instance, in tango, uh, to improve your technique, you can take an arm away. So it's like, all right, you're used to being here. It's like, what happens when you take this arm away? You, all these other components that you're able to fudge because you had this crutch, now, they gotta now they're it. glaring yeah. problems. Or you take away this arm, all right? Now you have to use your chest, you have to really change your signaling related to say the lead and, and la marca, right? So uh, I love those kind of constraints. Yeah, and they're, I think, self-imposed constraints with whatever sort of your medium is, whether it's photography or design, or yeah. uh, I talked to Stefan Sagmeis, one of the top designers in the world about uh, an impetus, there's a, there's a style for this, I don't remember what it's called, but oh, you gotta solve a problem, like you wanna design a new drinking glass? Well, what is, a, what is the way that you can take some other unrelated object and you design a drinking glass through the lens of this thing? Like a tennis shoe. Oh, what would a drinking glass look like mm -hmm. if you thought about as a tennis shoe? Oh, would it have a different kind of sole here in the bottom? Would it be lifted? Or that's a constraint that can add fuel to your creativity, actually. I think that's a pretty powerful totally. one. And I think that just using the tango example of like taking away an arm or the writing example of taking away a word or the podcast example of... Uh, for instance, I've done this as well. Like everybody always asks this guest about this, this, and this. I'm not allowed to talk about any of those. Okay. Once you have you use a constraint to do more with less, only then can you do more with more. Mm. I think. I like that. And uh, that's how I've approached it. Once you are really good at bleeding the stone with very little, then you can make use of 
all of your resources. But until then, I think it's just going to be a scattershot waste of energies sent in like one millimeter in a million different directions, as opposed to just like, you know, and being really good at picking your shots and using maximum leverage with all of your gifts. The way you do that is by taking these tiny components and be like, all right, I know you have these 100 things. I want you to do everything with this. That's it. That's all you're allowed. Um, and it's a fun exercise, too. I love that was the original uh, idea behind the iPhone for me as someone who was traveling all over the world with 100-person crews doing gigantic things. Like, what can I make with this one camera that's with me all the time? Yeah, with, yeah. And like, I'm doing that right now on the blog where I'm experimenting with, uh, well, for me, shorter form stuff. So it's like, all right, all right. Yeah, you write 23-page long blog posts that are hopefully evergreen and get traffic for years and years and years. But like, what if you only have 500 words? Like, mm. suck it up. You don't have time to give your Farisian preamble. Like, no, you're not allowed two pages to like say hello. No, like, get to it. Cut to it. Uh, and that's 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 another exercise for me. So get with this ninja shit I'm about to pull here. We're at 90 minutes, which is one of my constraints. Yeah. Uh, and but that being said, I want to just finish with a couple of rapid fire questions. <laughs> so one is, if you could put a billboard up anywhere, where would you put it, and what would it say? I would put it. I would put it on a footpath outside of the largest college or university in the U.S., and it would say, "You're the average of the five people you associate with most." Yeah, that's the first that comes to mind. And what's a book you've gifted <laughs> the most? Not, uh, not. Not bought for people or bought for yourself or yep. what's the book you've gifted the most? Um, you know that you, you see how this is. Happening. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I see where this is going. Yeah, the probably uh, the Penguin edition letters from a Stoic, which is a collection of Seneca's letters. I'm going to be making my own. Actually, I don't think I've even announced this. So there we go. Exclusive. Nice. Um, I have. I've had original artwork and calligraphy done over about six months. Uh, and I'll be putting out at some point an edition of Seneca's Letters that's illustrated, which is the artwork's amazing. Wow, it's so good. When yeah. are we going to see this? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm just kind of like I want to do it right. Sure, like of I'm course not, you do. Yeah, so I'm not not in a rush right now, but it's going to be it's going to be good. Uh, so probably though, if if I was gifting it Letters from Stoic, uh, I just recently bought ten copies of The Baron and the Trees that fiction book I was telling you about, just to have at my house. So when friends come over or visiting out of town, if they're looking for something to read, I'm going to give them that book. Um, surely you must be joking Mr. Feynman, about Richard Feynman, physicist, safecracker, bongo player, Nobel Prize winner, amazing. I like that you threw bongo player in there. Oh, well, he's, he's a polymath and he's a, he's, a, he's a playful trickster, but very smart and a genius teacher. Uh, so, surely you must be joking, Mr. Feynman is, is definitely up there. Those are the first few that come to mind. What's a thing that people don't know about you that they'd be very surprised if they found out in this podcast? Very surprised. Very surprised. Maybe let's all put a constraint on it. Something that you like that no one would think that you'd like. Something I like. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, I'm trying to think of a surprise. Uh, Japanese antique saddles. Uh, <laughs> a, few, a few years ago, I had a chance to go to Japan and study with the Ogasawara family uh, 
Yabusame, which is Japanese horseback archery. Uh, side note, the, the like the kind of uh, superstar of that family is a young guy, very, very handsome, super smart. And his jacket, which was like a cheesy kind of like 80s bowling jacket, like that shiny material yeah, with like the, sure. the, the, the like the tapers the, down to the, the cuff. nylon cuffs. Yeah, yeah the yeah. nylon cuffs. Love but it. the back said, Ogasawara Yabusame, since 1157. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I want that jacket so badly. The point being, uh, when you are doing horseback archery, the saddle is not designed to be uh, sat upon. It is just hard wood. And it's an, it, the sole purpose of the saddle is to hold the stirrups. And then you basically are in a squat, like, let's just hovering, call it, hovering. Yeah, hovering over the saddle. And that's when you like pull off the arrows and shoot at these targets at full gallop while no reins. Like the, the, the horse is just let to, let to sprint. And these saddles are gorgeous as a result because they're not covered. They're very, very minimalist. I mean, like you could pick it up with one hand like this, five to 10 pounds. And I have, uh, so that was, I think the four hour body. After the four hour body, my promise to myself was when I finished, I would allow myself to buy something Japanese that is at least 100 years old at auction. And I don't buy a lot of artwork at all. And I, then I thought, I was like, well, I'd like to get some armor, and I was looking at armor and swords, and then I said, you know what? Actually, I'm, I'm more interested in the saddles. I, I, was at, I was at your house once, and you had a teepee in the front room. You remember that? Yeah, I do. I do still have a teepee. I have a, I have, yeah, like an, is a it, Is that related to the saddle? Is it a leather and wood thing? Or? No, no, no. It's like, I do like earth tones. There you go. You do. Uh, but no, the, the Japanese saddles are gorgeous, so I have, cool. two, I have two of those. Beautiful. Yeah. Anything else I should ask that I haven't before we go? Anything you should ask? Mm -hmm. Uh, nothing, nothing immediately comes to mind. Um, we covered some ground. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, yeah, I would implore people to watch. So, so people talk a lot about commencement speeches, and uh, there are some great commencement speeches out there. But I suspect for a lot of people watching, yes, the Steve Jobs commencement at Stanford is fantastic. We've most, I think, in this certainly region of the world, have yep. seen. The commencement. It's a very good speech, but for people who are fighting the good fight with what anything they consider art, and that's up to you to define. I love that. But but whether it's a show like this, whether it's Creative Live as a company, whether it's writing and that just daily battle, podcasting, oil painting, anything, dance doesn't matter. Uh, my favorite commencement speech is Make Good Art by Neil Gaiman. Amazing speech. Which is, I try to watch at least once a week. It's amazing. And spoken also and delivered from someone who walks the walk. Just Dude, a master it. of many crafts who is just incredibly gifted, incredibly warm. I had the chance to meet him very briefly here at the Castro Theater. He did a, nice. did a, a, a live performance. Uh, just an incredible human being, and uh, I would I would part I suppose on on that note. That's and awesome. I suggest everybody check that out and uh, everybody. Yeah, if they like podcasts, I also have one of those. Tim yeah, Ferriss show. Good, definitely. Anything else? Any other coordinates? You're basically slash T Ferris with two R's, two S's. Yeah, uh, yeah. So at T Ferris on Twitter, uh, Four Hour Workweek. Snapchatting. I'm not Snapchatting what? yet. I what? might eventually. Yeah, you should. I have it's a fun. Little, I have a little bit of social media fatigue. Um, I'm Instagramming. 
Uh, You're picking your nose. Move your finger. There we go. Yeah, it does look <laughs> like I have. Uh, now I look weird. Sorry for those folks. There we now. go. We're Snapchatting. So, uh, yeah, at T Ferris on Twitter, and then Facebook is Tim Ferris, two R's, two S's. Instagram, Tim Ferris, two R's, two S's. But uh, I think if you really want to dig deep, uh, currently what I'm putting the most energy into is the podcast and the blog. Super fun. Yeah. Super fun. Thanks, bud. Yeah, man. Thank you, sir. All right. All right. That's it for today's show. But hey, before you go, I wanted you to know that I am so grateful to have your ears, your attention, and have you be a part of the community around this show. I love reading all your messages, the texts that come in, the questions, feedback, stories, guest ideas. It's I I devour every one of your comments. Uh, I respond as often as possible. And, you know, these are my, my thumbs tapping these things out on social uh, and my phone number on the other side of the text. Oh, you probably just in case you don't know that. Did you know you can text me 206 309 5177 with any feedback? And it's actually well, the first one's automated, but then that's actually my thumbs on the end of that. Um, again, I just want you to know that this show, I make this show for you and for me. And this community has been a driving force in my life for more than 10 years now. Uh, I've listened to you. I listen to your ideas and I do everything I can to make them come to life. So thank you for participating. Uh, my ears and eyes and thumbs are, are out there on the internet trying to make this happen. I just want you to know how grateful I am. And I want you to stay tuned for the next episode coming soon. Mm-hmm.